episode 17. Pull up a bit of grass, Barty, said Ludo brightly, patting the ground beside him. No, thank you, Ludo, said Crouch, and there was a bite of impatience in his voice. I've been looking for you everywhere. The Bulgarians are insisting we add another twelve seats to the top box. Oh, is that what they're after? said Bagman. I thought the chap was asking to borrow a pair of tweezers. Bit of a strong accent. Mr. Crouch, said Percy, breathlessly, sunk into a kind of half-bow which made him look like a hunchback. Would you like a cup of tea? Oh, said Mr. Crouch, looking over at Percy in mild surprise. Yes, thank you, Weatherby. Fred and George choked into their own cups. Percy, very pink around the ears, busied himself with the kettle. Oh, and I've been wanting a word with you too, Arthur, said Mr. Crouch, his sharp eyes falling upon Mr. Weasley. Ali Basher's on the warpath. He wants a word with you about your embargo on flying carpets. Mr. Weasley heaved a deep sigh. I said to Manowl about that just last week. I've told him once, I've told him a hundred times. Carpets are defined as a muggle artifact by the registry of proscribed charmable objects. But will he listen? I doubt it, said Mr. Crouch, accepting a cup of tea from Percy. He's desperate to export here. Well, they'll never replace brooms in Britain, will they? said Bagman. Ali thinks there's a niche in the market for a family vehicle, said Mr. Crouch. I remember my grandfather had an Axminster that could seat twelve. But that was before carpets were banned, of course. He spoke as though he wanted to leave nobody in any doubt that all his ancestors had abided strictly by the law. So, been keeping busy, Barty, said Bagman, breezily. Fairly, said Mr. Crouch, dryly. Organizing port keys across five continents is no mean feat, Ludo. I expect you'll both be glad when this is over, said Mr. Weasley. Ludo Bagman looked shocked. Glad? Don't know when I've had more fun. Still, it's not as though we haven't got anything to look forward to. Eh, Barty? <laughs> Plenty left to organize, eh? Mr. Crouch raised his eyebrows at Bagman. We agreed not to make the announcement until all the details... Oh, details, said Bagman, waving the word away like a cloud of midges. They've signed, haven't they? They've agreed, haven't they? I bet you anything these kids will know soon enough anyway. I mean, it's happening at Hogwarts. Ludo, we need to meet the Bulgarians, you know, said Mr. Crouch sharply, cutting Bagman's remark short. Thank you for the tea, Weatherby. He pushed his undrunk tea back at Percy and waited for Ludo to rise. Bagman struggled to his feet again, swigging down the last of his tea, the gold in his pockets chinking merrily. See you all later, he said. You'll be in the top box with me. I'm commentating. He waved. Barty Crouch nodded curtly and both of them disapparated. What's happening at Hogwarts, Dad? said Fred at once. What are they talking about? You'll find out soon enough, said Mr. Weasley, smiling. It's classified information until such time as the Ministry decides to release it, 
said Percy stiffly. Mr. Crouch was quite right not to disclose it. Oh, shut up, Wellaby, said Fred. A sense of excitement rose like a palpable cloud over the campsite as the afternoon wore on. By dusk, the still summer air itself seemed to be quivering with anticipation. And as darkness spread like a curtain over the thousands of waiting wizards, the last vestiges of pretense disappeared. The ministry seemed to have bowed to the inevitable and stopped fighting the signs of blatant magic now breaking out everywhere. Salesmen were apparating every few feet, carrying trays and pushing carts full of extraordinary merchandise. There were luminous rosettes, green for Ireland, red for Bulgaria, which were squealing the names of the players, pointed green hats bedecked with dancing shamrocks, Bulgarian scarves adorned with lions that really roared, flags from both countries which played their national anthems as they were waved. There were tiny models of firebolts which really flew, and collectible figures of famous players which strolled across the palm of your hand, preening themselves. Been saving my pocket money all summer for this, Ron told Harry, as they and Hermione strolled through the salesmen buying souvenirs. Though Ron purchased himself a dancing shamrock hat and a large green rosette, he also bought a small figure of Victor Crumb, the Bulgarian seeker. The miniature Crumb walked backwards and forwards over Ron's hand, scowling up at the green rosette above him. Wow! Look at these, said Harry, hurrying over to a cart piled high with what looked like brass binoculars, except that they were covered in all sorts of weird knobs and dials. Oh, binoculars, said the sales wizard eagerly. You can replay action, slow everything down, and they flash up a play-by-play -play breakdown if you need it. Bargain. Ten galleons each. Wish I hadn't bought this now, said Ron gesturing at his dancing shamrock hat and gazing longingly at the ominoculars. Three pairs, said Harry firmly to the wizard. Now, don't bother, said Ron, going red. He was always touchy about the fact that Harry, who had inherited a small fortune from his parents, had much more money than he did. You won't be getting anything for Christmas, Harry told him, thrusting ominoculars into his and Hermione's hands. For about ten years, mind. Fair enough, said Ron, grinning. Ooh, thanks, Harry, said Hermione, and I'll get us some programs. Look. Their money bags considerably lighter. They went back to the tents. Bill, Charlie, and Jenny were all sporting green rosettes, too, and Mr. Weasley was carrying an Irish flag. Fred and George had no souvenirs, as they had given bagmen all their gold. And then, a deep, booming gong sounded somewhere in the woods, and at once, green and red lanterns blazed into life in the trees, lighting a path to the pitch. It's time, said Mr. Weasley, looking as excited as any of them. Come on, let's go. Chapter 8 The Quidditch World Cup Clutching their purchases, Mr. Weasley in the lead, they all hurried into the wood, following the lantern-lit trail. 
They could hear the sounds of thousands of people moving around them, shouts and laughter, snatches of singing. The atmosphere of feverish excitement was highly infectious. Harry couldn't stop grinning. They walked through the wood for 20 minutes, talking and joking loudly, until at last they emerged on the other side and found themselves in the shadow of a gigantic stadium. Though Harry could see only a fraction of the immense gold walls surrounding the pitch, he could tell that ten cathedrals would fit comfortably inside it. Seats a hundred thousand, said Mr. Weasley, spotting the awestruck look on Harry's face. Ministry task force of five hundred have been working on it all year. Muggle-repelling charms on every inch of it. Every time muggles have got anywhere near here all year, they've suddenly remembered urgent appointments they had to dash away again. Bless them, he added fondly, leading the way toward the nearest entrance, which was already surrounded by a swarm of shouting witches and wizards. Prime seats, said the ministry witch at the entrance when she checked their tickets. Top box, straight upstairs, Arthur, and as high as you can go. The stairs in the stadium were carpeted in rich purple. They clambered upwards with the rest of the crowd, which slowly filtered away through doors into the stands to their left and right. Mr. Weasley's party kept climbing, and at last they reached the top of the staircase and found themselves in a small box, seated at the highest point of the stadium and situated exactly halfway between the golden goalposts. About twenty purple and gilt chairs stood in two rows here, and Harry, filing into the front seats with the Weasleys, looked down upon a scene the like of which he could never have imagined.'